everyone. Welcome to Backstory Sessions. I'm your host, Matt. We hope you enjoy this episode. Everybody, it's Kath, and I want to welcome you to this episode of Backstory Sessions. Uh, today I'm joined by my co-host, Matt. Hey, Matt. Hey, everyone. How are you? Well, uh, Matt, uh, you know, today's guest is a CG, just like me. So uh, <laughs> yeah. it's going to be just an awesome <clears throat> episode, I feel like. Yeah, kind of outnumbered here, apparently. I know. I mean... You know, someday there's probably some star out there that's like an MR. I don't know. Yeah. But, I'll have you know, to think if you're about out that. there, uh, yeah. you know, feel free to contact <laughs> us and we might interview you. <laughs> might, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I know everyone is waiting to find out who our CG guest is. So uh, without further ado, today we have Courtney Gaines with us. Courtney, I want to welcome you to Backstory Sessions. Thank you. Nice to talk to you guys. Yeah, and I always, when I do emails, I always end with a CG. So, yes, we've got the CG thing going. Very good. We've got it going on, and I feel like the energy is going to be a great episode. Um, you know, and that's great because we try to uncover the backstories. And so, you know, I just feel like you're going to, like, tell us some secret stuff or uh-oh, something. Uh-oh, no pressure. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just just truthful stuff, you know, that you've, like, kept hidden all these years. <laughs> just for this moment. <laughs> um, but, you know, my first question, I guess, we, we always kind of just start with... You know, what is the beginning of your backstory? Like, where did you grow up and that kind of thing? I grew up in uh, Los Angeles, and I grew up uh, in an area known as, like, Echo Park, Elysian Valley, which is near Dodger Stadium. And, uh, you know, it would be considered the, you know, maybe the wrong side of the tracks or something like that. Uh, it was certainly near the train tracks and near the river. And, uh, uh I think that definitely shaped some things. Growing up, uh, a white boy in a in a Chicano neighborhood, you had to be tough. You know, you 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 survive. You, there was like two ways of surviving: one, fighting, which I'm not much of a fighter. I'm an actor, aren't I? Um, or what we called capping, putting people down, right? You know, riffing on each other. I was very good at that because they were very quick to point out that I looked different. You know, my red hair, my freckled face, my buck teeth, which I was already painfully aware of. So uh, yeah, I'd be like, well, if you're going to talk smack about me, I'll find something to talk smack about you. So that's how you survived in the neighborhood I grew up in. Wow. And, and you know, that's kind of interesting because when someone says, it's, and you're the first one actually that we've interviewed that grew up in L.A. And, wow. you know, uh, I guess that you, when you just hear Los Angeles, you think, oh, you know, this is like a privileged um growing up you know um like everything would be perfect like a movie or something well you, know, you think of the, the highlighted places they, they, they show they show you beverly hills they show you the beaches and and you know all of that's there and and, and there you know i always tell people when they went to la that la is 
you know, any, it's all here, you know, it's all here. So be careful what you get into because you, you can, you name it, it's here, you know, from the highest spiritual to the lowest of the low. And, you know, there's traps, you know, uh, LA is a, LA is an interesting place. So what was school like there? Did you have a lot of arts opportunities or was that your interest early on? It was, there wasn't really the art programs that there are now. There, there are lots of them in Los Angeles now, uh, you know, even, you know, in the, the city schools and such. Um, uh, but, um, but, but grammar school, grammar school did have a huge impact in that regard. So I, I was in an after-school program, which was for the, the kids that weren't going to get picked up till later. Meaning, either they came from a broken home, so one parent working, or both parents were working. So it was the roughneck kids, and um, we had we had this this teacher named Miss Gardner who I kept in touch with, like, she came to see me do theater, like, you know, over the years and things, like, she got all us tough kids to do theater, and and, and it was because she was tough with us that we respected her enough to do it, and um, that's how it started, the first thing I ever did was a Snow White and a Seven Dwarfs, started out as a dwarf, the prince backed out, she said, you're doing it, I'm like, I don't want to kiss the girl, I'm 10 years old, you know, and she's like, you're doing it, that's it, and I'm like, okay, so, and, you know, I didn't anticipate going out there, and when, you, you know, it gets in the way, she comes to life, everybody applauds, and, like, you've saved the day, I was hooked, I was hooked, okay, I was the hero. Like, were you hooked on the kiss, or were you hooked on acting at that point? I was, I was hooked okay. on that I got, that I got to change the outcome of something, I got to be the hero, right, I was hooked on that. But I was also there was something that happened, and it's still it's still the same thing that does happen to me. Is you know right before you go on stage, you have these nerves, right? It's like the you know truth, as it were, right? And something happens when I hit the boards where I get this calm and this familiarity in this home, and I felt that the first time I walked on a stage. Oh wow! So. Yeah. You just knew then that, that you were going to be doing more things. Well, I was clear as what I wanted to be doing, yeah. And so uh, my father tells a story that when I was six, I don't remember this, but someone asked me, you know, like they asked a little kid, so you want to be a fireman when you grow up or a police officer or whatever? And he said, I looked at the person very you know, seriously in the eyes and said, no, I'm going to be an actor. Not I want to be, I'm going to be. And he said that he remembered that having an impact on him, the, the way in which it was it was stated. And he thought to himself, I'll do what I can to help. And my mom had been in the USO at a young age, entertaining troops and stuff, and had done chorus lines and movies. And somehow she, even though she chose it all, she somehow felt she lost a little bit of her childhood and she didn't want me to be a childhood actor. So I had to keep bugging her. I bugged her and bugged her and bugged her until she finally put me, put me in a class when I was, uh, I was 13. And I didn't like the class because it was like her background, like showed like dancing and tap dancing and people <laughs> wearing tights. And like I came from the, you know, I came from the hood. Like, like I was like, this is not what I was signing up for. I wanted something grittier. And I was about to quit after doing it for three or four times. I just really didn't feel like I fit in there at all. And um, this guy approached us on the street. His name was Virgil Fry. And he said, hey, is your son an actor? I love his look. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I'm an acting coach and my son's an actor. And I'm thinking, yeah, who is this guy? 
And then his son came out for the audition. He was a commercial audition. And I recognized his son immediately. His name's Sean Fry. And in the 70s, Sean Fry worked a lot. He was in the original Fun with Dick and Jane. He was in a bunch of movie of the weeks, Elizabeth Montgomery. And I thought, oh, my God, this guy must know what he's doing. His son's working. So I joined this guy's class, and it was real method acting, good stuff. And uh, I ended up studying with him for 10 years, and he was my manager for a period of time. And he's who broke me into the business. Wow, so he just, like, saw you on the street with your mom. Yep, coming out of that class. So it was like divine intervention, you know. Uh, he became my yeah. mentor, you know. But it, So even though it wasn't the right class that I was at, it was the right place to be because it led to him, which uh, – and he went you – know, his, uh, his daughter went on to be a big uh, child star, so Lehman and Fry, Funky Brewster. Sarah, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, do you think it was just coincidence or do you think there was, you know, do you believe in some force that put you in the right place at the right time? So, um, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I try to see things from two sides as much as I can. So I, I definitely think like we always want to subscribe meaning to everything in life. And I don't think everything in life has meaning. I think a lot of things are very simple. But I also think there's times where you can call it divine intervention or whatever you want. And I believe that that happens when you are committed to something. When you commit to something, 110, which I was committed to it even at a very young age, that's when I think the universe bends to you in some way and, and helps you out. Okay. Yeah. So from this acting class, and you, you said you were about 13 or so when that started. Yeah. When when did you get the first big break? Yeah, so so what was happening around me is there were actors in the class after studying a year or two that were working, right? They were getting jobs and breaking out, and I wasn't. I was getting frustrated, but I kept kept at it, kept at it. And everybody kept telling me, including Virgil, that, look, when you turn 18, you're doing really good work. When you turn 18, it's going to pop for you. You're going to blow up. And what I didn't understand was the basic simple thing was – there were no underage performing actors, really. Uh, if they were, they were twins, like a lot of times they were really young, so they could work an eight-hour day. So if you were sure. underage, they didn't have emancipation laws back then like they do now. So as 80s cinema was, teenage cinema was starting to blow up, um, they were looking for actors who were 18 who looked younger, which is exactly what I was. I was 18, but I looked 15. But I also had five years of training under my belt at that point, like, you know, good training. And I didn't realize how ready I was, but but, but my but Virgil did. And he kept you know, instilling confidence in me. And that's exactly what happened. As soon as I turned 18, I worked nonstop for like six years, just, just nonstop and really established myself. So what was the first thing that you um, got paid for? Throwing another corn. Wow, Sarah, that was the first. Yeah. So, okay, okay, so I'm going to, like, you know, I watched that movie, and I'm, I was terrified. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, tell me how, I, I was, like, very curious. I told Matt, like, I have to know, you know, like, did you just audition for everything, or did you pick this out in particular? Um, you know, how did that come to be? Yeah, no, it was an audition. I mean, you know, I'm trying to break into the business, right? I'm looking for any job I could get, right? I mean, 
it's hard to get an acting job. You know, still to this day, it's hard to get an acting job. <laughs> you, know? you have to work at it, and you go through like anything like like I you know equated to people making sales. You know, you've got to make a lot of phone calls to get a sale. It's, it's the same thing in the film business. You got to do a lot of auditions, a lot of meetings, and you know, a small percentage of those things pan out. You know. And sometimes you get lucky and you get on a roll for a while, but but in general, in general, you've got to take a lot of meetings. That's that's really the the name of the game. Um, so yeah, so I was I was you know I was just getting started, and I was you know I had an agent, you know I got got that far and such, and I was starting to hit the bricks. But you sometimes you know like you know when a role comes along that you say to yourself, this is in my wheelhouse, this is right for me, this is what I can get. And uh, I felt that that role was, you know, was that. I thought, I, and I had a chip on my shoulder. I felt like I had something to prove. And I, I knew I could play intense and anger. You know, I had that stuff in me as a person from where I grew up and this and that. I knew I could bring the thunder, as I call it. And um, so, you know, I went in there to prove something. And uh, I guess I did because, I got, you know, I got the job, so. So, uh, what was the audition like? <laughs> good, good question. Because there's a good story here about that. Okay, great. So, so the I had to, I had to do uh, the first audition and then a second audition. At that point, the second audition did already cast John Franklin, and they were down to like two or three of us for the role of uh, Malachi. But so in the first audition, I had to read with a reader who was also going to be our vocal uh, instructor or something. Um, a guy named uh, Jeff Goldberg who went on to become a very big casting director uh, cast shows like Wings and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, I had this plastic toy uh, knife in my pocket that I wasn't sure whether I was going to use in any stage or not, but I had it. You know, those ones where you, like, you, know, you stab yourself and it goes in, like it's got a little spring action in it? Sure, yeah. So I had one of those in my pocket, and uh, in the middle of our thing, I pulled it out and put it under his throat, and he couldn't tell whether it was real or not because I pulled it out too fast. And uh, he, you know, he was really scared. And uh, but the director and uh, the producer could see clearly what was what. And I could see them out of the corner of my eye turned to themselves like, whoa, <laughs> like this guy. Yeah, I took I took the I took the room. You know what I mean? I took power, you know, and that's hard right. to do when you come in as an actor in an audition because everybody else in that room has got a job. You're trying to get a job. You're not the one in power. You know, you understand yeah. So it's like, so I was able to take the take the room over, and um, that got me to the next round, which was I walked in. They didn't tell us the other guy had been cast, and then there's this little actor, John Franklin, in the room, and now he's you know, feeling good about himself. He got the job, and so I know I'm close. It's down to me and another, you know, another couple guys. And I just remember grabbing John by his lapels and, and basically picking him up off the floor. <laughs> so I remember. And John says, you know, John and I are still friends of this day. We'll forever be linked to this movie. And we do conventions together and things like that. He said, oh, you are by far the most terrifying guy. <laughs> he said, you are intense. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty true. Um, but, yes, I remember shaking the hell out of him. And these are things I don't – I don't advise other actors to do the things I did, okay? I, I mean, Jeff, Jeff went on to do many, many uh, – uh, you know, uh, sessions where he talked to fans and people, and, and he tells people this story to tell them what not to do to a casting director, and he's right. <laughs> you should do what I did, but uh, it worked, and I wouldn't have the nerve to do it today because I know better. But I was young sure. and I was hungry. 
Wow. I did not expect that was the way the audition went, but, um, you know, I I can definitely, like, in my mind, see that playing out and uh, how that would be quite an advantage for showing off the type. But with the, the way that what, what, you would but, play that character. But that could also completely work against you depending on the room and their point of view. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example. I, did, I, uh, I auditioned for this play called When You Come Back, Red Rider, and I read with all the guys that played the tough guy. And um, a friend of mine was, I was in a theater company, which was one of the people. And to me, he was by far the best reader. But when he, he picked me up by the lapels and shook me, I was totally comfortable because I knew him. But it completely freaked the, uh, the. I was in the room with him after he left. It completely freaked out casting, and you know he left a really bad impression on him. Even though I was saying at the end, like, "Hey, I'm fine. I actually know him. That's what he was comfortable with." They didn't care. The fact that he put his hands on me for them was a done deal. So it's a it's a it's it's a risky proposition, right? It, and like I said, I was too young to know how risky it was. You know, but I know now that it could get you, you know, it could get you literally, you know, that cast actor may never see see you again, you know, so. Yeah, and I wonder now, like, um, if it would even be uh, more risky than then, um, because, you know, it seems like there's been a lot of attention on violence and things like that, and um, I, I just wonder now if it would even be more of a risk to show that side, Um well, yeah, you know, anything, and un PC nowadays, right? Everything's, you know, yeah. It probably, but it might be worse now. I don't know. Uh, well, I, I know, like in your latest film, which we're, we'll be talking about, um, you know, there's so many things I want I want to mention uh, about Queen Bees. But before we get to that, so you do Children of the Corn. Um, what what's it like playing Malachi? Um, it's as an actor, still one of the most uh, uh, intense experiences uh, I ever had. And, um, you know, my mentor would talk about things like the muse coming, you know, like the muse coming through you. And that was like kind of like a concept. I'd had some really wonderful moments in acting class, but still never quite felt that the muse came through me feeling. And uh, for whatever reason, with this particular role, when, when, uh, we would shoot in that cornfield. We'd, we'd, we'd go from the trailer. We'd walk through the maze and then to the actual open area. I would feel this energy to start to come up, come on. And and uh, when by the time I got to the set, I'd be locked in to the point where well, Fritz Kirsch, the director, who we also keep in touch. He's a really nice guy. And I don't keep in touch with everybody. I really don't. But I have this particular movie, I guess, which is Bonded. Um, he would be giving, you know, the direction. I'm like, okay, in this scene, you walk, you're talking here, you walk to here, blah, blah, blah. And I would just be looking at him like that, you know, I was going to eat his lunch. And he'd just be like, are you okay? You understand what I'm saying? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah. And he'd be like, okay, that's rehearsed. And I would do the rehearsal with, like, no performance. And he'd be like, uh, is that how you're going to do it? I'm like, no. He's was like, well, how are you going to, like, roll one and see what I'm going to do. If you don't like it, we can change it. He'd be like, okay. And then and he would say, rolling sound action and i feel like this energy come from the sky go right through me and out my eyes i can't and it happened to me every time in that field and yeah. and he would just be like okay that's working so he stopped asking that question you know he would just show me what i would do and just leave me alone you know and uh and yeah it was it was a powerful experience and what was at stake for me personally is i 
I felt I needed to prove to the industry and to myself that I belong. You know, I'd studied for, you know, five years as a young person hard at it. This was the moment of truth. I remember when I got the job, my uh, my agent was like, she said, you've got the job. I said, okay. She said, aren't you excited? I said, no. She's like, why? I said, I'll be all excited when I'm done. I know I did a good job. And that's how I felt about it. Like, I felt like it wasn't about getting the job. It was about performing the job, proving myself. And so when I was done with that movie, I knew, I knew like in my heart of hearts that I belonged and that I was going to do this for a living. I knew it. I, I, I can't explain it. I just knew it. And did you sense that Children of the Corn was going to be a hit? No, no, I really didn't know. Like I was like, there were some people that were into Stephen King at that point, but I was, I didn't really, you know, I wasn't like a big Stephen King guy. Horror was not, horror was like B-movie, like, you know, like, like not taken seriously. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it got panned by the critics. It, I, mean, I, I remember seeing, you know, local critics on TV panning my performance, like, it was not taken seriously. It just people didn't they didn't realize that over the next, you know, thirty years that horror was gonna go completely mainstream. And movies like that came out of the eighties in particular, it's considered that golden era of horror, uh, other than like the thirties, you know, thirties uh, and forties, uh, that that those movies were gonna go on to be like iconic things. Like nobody knew. We didn't know. Just right place, right time, you know. Yeah, that seems to be like a kind of a theme so far, you know. They <laughs> find you on the street, now you're in a horror movie at the right time, you know. I mean, timing I is everything. It's you're absolutely right. You're you're on you're on you're onto it. That's I think in, in any uh, artist's career, if they have any, uh, if they're fortunate enough to have any, you know, success, it, it, it absolutely comes down to being right place, right time. Yeah. Well, um, so then after Children of the Corn, and it is a success, what happens next? Um, so so I had a movie. So I was one of the places my acting manager would take me to a class uh, and, uh, on Sundays that he also was in. That was a place to be seen. It was a casting director, a guy named Gino Havens. And it was a, and he had a, another person that coached out with him, a guy named Mark Griffin, um, who was a director. And uh, like I said, people would go there mainly to be seen. And so I would go there with him on Sundays and do our thing on uh, Sunday nights. And uh, Mark got a Roger Carman movie called Hard Bodies. And uh, Mark's gone on to direct many films. And one of his things he always asks for is a chance as a director to do a rewrite on it, to do a polish, whatever he wants to do. So they agreed to that. And when he did that, he wrote the character of Rags and Hard Bodies kind of with me in mind. You know, he's who I want. You know, he's who he wanted me to do the role because he'd seen what I could do in class. So when I got back, I had to I had to audition, but it was a bit of a, like I would have had to like really screw up not to get the job, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, so that was literally as soon as I got back from from Show the Corner, I did Hard Bodies, which Columbia Pictures ended up picking up. And and uh, you know, in the world of you know TNA films back then, Skimax and all of that, it's <laughs> it's it's iconic amongst teenage boys in college fraternity houses <laughs> all right matt there you go yeah you're also in uh can't buy me love what... right and so uh how that happened was i did a, there was a company called apollo films it was a, an indie film company that i so i did a movie for them called winners take all 
Right. And uh, it was a little motorcycle dirt bike movie that you know didn't go anywhere per se, but they then did that movie, and I ran for the lead, and I didn't get that, but they offered me the best friend, and uh, that was great. So and then so that was an independent film, and what happened was Touchstone Pictures, which was a subsidiary of Disney, it was the first film they picked up, and they put money back into it to do a reshoot and clean up all the tasteless jokes because there were plenty of them. Right. And they also then bought the title track can't buy me love which was like two hundred fifty thousand dollars at the time yeah and took that movie you know to the next level and it ended up being the number three movie of the summer that year yeah it was uh i've seen it probably i don't know eight ten times one of my uh (laughs) i I do like that one (laughs) it's kind of yeah it's a good it's a good film and it's got you know from my character's well i think from overall it's got a good point of view but from my character's point of view of you know the the uh, you know the nerd and, but sticking by his own guns and being who he is. Um, probably the coolest thing I've ever heard uh, is, is the thing I haven't heard. Uh, I can't tell you how many times people screamed "You shit on my house!" You know, <laughs> walking down the street. <laughs> uh, but uh, the coolest thing I ever heard was a guy coming up to me, you know, going, you know, going like, "I was a jock in my senior year, a football player, and I was looking forward to hazing the." freshman i saw that movie and then i couldn't do it mm. wow and you're like wow the power of cinema man yeah power of cinema yeah definitely and then you were i mean you've been in a, a lot of great movies like memphis bell and back to the future and uh you know some ones that i you know are definitely recognizable um and then some that aren't. I mean, I'll be honest. There's... Yeah, oh yeah. There's a ton now that aren't. <laughs> That's like that was my eighties run. Memphis Bell was the last movie I got in the eighties. I got that in eighty nine and it came out in ninety. Yeah. Um, so that was the run. You know, I had a and that was a different era too, right? Films went to theaters back then, right? Like you, it was guaranteed to go to if they were making a movie and it got distribution, it was gonna be seen in a theater. Right. It had to be. That's how they made their money. And in the 90s, the game started shifting, you know, and it started to become, you know, uh, cable. It started to become uh, via, you know, video. And then so they started making movies that were going directly to video. So things started really going in a, a, a different direction. And so, therefore, there's a lot of movies I made that did not have the level of, of fame and breakout, you know? Yeah, yeah. So uh, just out of curiosity, what's been your favorite role? Yeah, that's like, all right, somebody else like, your favorite child or yeah, yeah. I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know i don't know that i can say that there's a favorite role um or they say your favorite movie and i'm like come on man say thanks but i do have to say like memphis bell was an extraordinary experience that all of us actors that were in that have said we've been chasing something as good as that the rest of our career because it was just we got to shoot in the uk for you know three months the 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 crew uh, were like the creme de la creme of like the UK, like there was like five Oscar winners on that. The right, producer, yeah. the editor, the DP, the production designer, you know, and the cinematographer. Okay. It's like, I've never worked with, a, I've never, I've worked with some really good DPs. I've worked with some really good directors. I've worked with some really good producers. I don't think I've ever been on something like with an all-star lineup like that since, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely a good movie. I, I remember it well. Yeah, the timing, on, the timing on that, talk about bad timing, because we're talking about good timing. The bad timing on that is that movie came out right as the first Iraqi war broke out. Uh, so yeah. no one really wanted to go see a war movie 
because nobody knew how long a war a war was going to go. They didn't know it was going to be so short. <laughs> but the timing of the release couldn't have been worse, and it did definitely hurt our box office. Yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, I guess those things happen. You can't, you know, you can't timing predict events, right? Yeah. <laughs> like we just talked about, timing is everything. Yeah. Well, so uh, I, I think, like, looking at that timing, like, if you were in Back to the Future, you know, if you had that time travel, you could <laughs> just, like, you know, change the release a little bit. But um, Oh, I, I definitely would have, and I think it would have probably changed, I mean, quite frankly, I think it would have changed the trajectory of my career. I, I do. I think if that movie had done box office. Uh, not that I didn't get a lot of opportunities after that I did, and the mistake the mistake I made is at that point I thought I had arrived because that movie was the movie to get that year for young actors. I'm telling you, everybody wanted that movie. It was the biggest break you could have got for, as a young actor that year. So I thought like it was a done deal. And so my, so at that point when I started getting up, I was getting opportunities. I, I, st- I took my eye off the ball. I wasn't preparing as an actor the way I used to. I, I was other things I wanted to do. I started a production company. I started a band, and they were all things that I, I, did, I don't regret doing. But I was not—I didn't realize it was really more like I had just begun, not like I had just arrived. So then I ended up getting married and having a kid, and I—and that's when I really kind of got myself in '92 reestablished. There was like a two-year period there where I—I kind of disappeared, and and it was because I wasn't getting the jobs. I was getting the opportunities, but I wasn't getting the jobs. Hmm. So, in Back to the Future, um, what, what was that like? I mean, I'm just curious because, you know, it, it ties in with Christopher Lloyd to your yes. the latest film we're going to talk about. Right. So, I've, what was I've, it like to be a part of that? I've technically worked with Christopher Lloyd twice, though we've never done a scene together. That's funny. And I'm a fan of his, for sure. I mean, I think he's brilliant. Yeah. Um, so, so, Back to the Future, uh, the cool thing about that for me when I, when I first got on there is is is, uh, is that Crispin Glover and I already knew each other. You asked what was the first paid gig I had. The first gig I ever did was an AFI project that Crispin Glover was in. Um, I always forget the name of the actual title, but they've made, they've made three versions of this shirt. One of them, Sean Penn played the character. It's called the Beaver Trilogies. And you can check out there's it's it's three shorts about the same subject, but with big like each like amazing actors playing the role. It's a very weird cult phenomenon out there. But um, so I tell this story that it's pretty funny. So I'm, I'm, I'm so I, I get this job. It's my first gig. Uh, I come in and say, okay, you and your buddy are you know smoking your cigarettes in the boys' room. Uh, and just improv, go. And then we're doing it. And then the bathroom door opens, and it's Crispin Glover dressed in the black outfit of Olivia Newton-John from, from Greece, <laughs> wig and all. Tell me Chris, about it, Dad. Crispin Glover, right? Doing Crispin. You know, hey, guys, how's, how's, how's it going? What's going on? And I'm watching this, mind-blown by this outfit that no one wore, but I'm watching this actor going, this guy's really freaking good. <laughs> Who is he? You know, <laughs> and, and, and cause I think I think Crispin Glover, like the subtext, the the process you can see of his thoughts crossing his eyes as an actor. You know, he, he's 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 really good. <laughs> you know, he's brilliant in his own really interesting quirky way. So it was great to get on a set and on such a big movie and know somebody already. So that was great. And then the other the second part of the story is. 
which I have told many, many times, is that so a lot of people, some people know, some people don't. Eric Stoltz was originally the lead uh, as Marty, and he got let go because he was being method actor and making everybody call him Marty, and they didn't think it was funny. I think Eric Stoltz is a very good actor. Obviously, we worked in Method Spell together. And uh, so what happened was they can only, what they call drop pick you up once, where they hire you, have you sit, and then not have to pay you while you're sitting, and then pick you up again to work. After that, they have to pay you for every day you're working. And so when they did that reshoot, I got paid for five weeks nice. for a job that was maybe three days. <laughs> and that's, wow. gone on to be, that's gone on to be the biggest trilogy uh, box office of all time. So it's been nothing but a blessing for me. The best residual checks I've ever gotten uh, through the years have been, have been Back to the Future. I mean, it still plays on TV to this day constantly. So I'm uh, very fortunate to have been on such a cool project and that it, that it was a, such a financial blessing in my, my career. Yeah. Well, so I'm curious if you, um, you know, if you could go back to one day in your life in the past. Oh, God. Where would you, you know, what day would you visit again? Uh I think that's pretty easy, actually. It really has nothing to do with my career. I think yep. would be the day my son was born. Aww. Um, that was a part of the, you know, one of the single most mind-blowing experiences of my life. And it changed, you know, your, your life changes, you know, when you, all of a sudden you're a father, it completes you in a way that you didn't even know that it, you didn't even know something was missing, but all of a sudden you're completed in a different, in a way and it, it changed my complete mindset about, you know, why, you know, before that I was acting, you know, for me, I was all for me, right? Everything was for me. Once you become a father, it's not, it gets very clear very quickly for the next, you know, 18 years. It's not about you. It has very little to do with you. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember when my son was born, I was thinking to myself, yeah, now I got to stop doing stupid shit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Got to stop doing the stupid shit. Got to get serious. Got to bring home the bacon. Got to yeah. keep a roof over our head. And got to worry about their future. And, uh, you know, that's that's exactly what the sort of after I said there was a two year period there where I was just doing all these other things I wanted to do and wasn't really focused on the acting as much. Um, at that point, it all got very serious. You know, the band was like, if we're not serious and not going to hit the road and not going to get a deal, I'm out production company if you guys ain't serious we're not gonna find a way to make money because the one thing i know i can make money out is an actor and i just you know really repivoted and recommitted to to working as an actor again and that's when i went on that 90s tv run basically just doing tons of guest stars hmm. well this should have been the father's day episode you know that would have been really great uh... um, <laughs> Yeah, maybe so. Well, to change, you know, change gears a little because I, I know our interview time is winding down. But uh, Queen Bees, how did you become involved in this? And uh, I, I think it's a beautiful story and funny too. I, I loved it. Yeah, I agree. And I, even though I have you know small cameo in it, I was I was uh, proud to be part of it and uh, been very pleased to find out that I made the trailers and. That my, you know, that my part has been, even that's a very small part, a little pivotal part of the movie that, that uh, people seem to remember. So that's very cool. Oh, was getting, hilarious. <laughs> yeah, getting a chance to work with Ellen Bernstein and Anna Margaret and Jane Kirk on Reddit Divine was 
not a chance I was going to miss up. I mean, that, that's, you know, to me, four iconic actresses in their own right, you know. And uh, it was a pleasure to get to work with them. It was a pleasure to get to watch them work. Um, um, oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, it was an amazing cast all put together. And um, so as you watched it, um, did it make you think about, like, um, you know, your parents being older or maybe what it's going to be like when you're older? Did it have any connections like that to you? Uh, Yeah, not to get too heavy, but I lost my parents uh, at a pretty young age. uh, So I, I didn't have to go through that transition. And I've thought about that many times. Yeah, that was you know, sometimes in, in people's lives when they when their career like when they're having a boost in their career they have a tragedy that seems to be a common theme. My parents passed away right in that period when my career started blowing up when I was like 18, 20 years old. So mm-hmm. I was very, very thankful though that I got three films done in that time and my parents got to see that they knew that you know I had comp- you know began to accomplish the dream. You know they saw that and so that meant oh, the world to me. Uh, but I do have often thought about that. I have friends now who are all going through that, that with their parents that in that way I've been you know fortunate it's hard enough to bring up a kid now you bring up children and taking care of your parents too that's it's hard to imagine you know it's not it's a, it's tough nowadays the way the society's set up to deal with with parents getting older you know it's a very difficult situation so um, so yes I think about my own self and I think about my own son I think about how I want to set up my uh my life as i grow older so that you know he the, that i'm not a burden i do think about those types of things and i, I do intend to set it up that yeah, you know you can go visit or whatever but i have myself together like you're not having to take care of me so let us pray that's how it goes not how it would hmm. um i think the first question you asked though that i need to answer was how did i get involved in queen bees and i, I, I want to talk about that so um so the director, Michael Lembeck, has, you know, done a lot of, a lot of sitcoms, a lot of comedic films. And um, his, his father taught a class for years. His father was a famous actor, Harvey Lembeck. He had the Harvey Lembeck Comedy Workshop. So he, Michael, and his sister, Helene, have carried on that workshop. And I took the workshop with them for a number of years, a few years. And it's a really good comedy class. If anybody's looking for a comedy class in L.A., I highly recommend it. So I got to know Michael through that, and um, I heard he had this film, and so I, I said, is there anything you know I could read for it? And he's like, hey, there's this part I think you'd be good for. It. It's not a big part, but when he told me who else was in it, I'm like, I'm there. Let's do this. So I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. It was a really good experience to get to work with them, and it was a really good experience to get to work with those wonderful actresses. Uh, so do you think those actresses could beat you up? Uh, uh Loretta Vine looks pretty. Seems pretty tough to me. Uh, that's what I'm thinking too. I'm thinking like she's yeah, definitely the right one you. to kick me in the cojones. She was, she was the one I would, I would put my money's on too. It, it was hilarious, you know. I, I mean, because I kept looking as I was watching it because I knew we were going to be um, interviewing you. So I'm like, you know, where's this scene going to be? And um, so when it popped up like that, I was like, oh, that is so funny. You know, it was. It was really perfect, and um, it's really good for the trailer, you know. Um, yeah, I was surprised to made the trailer and stuff. I thought that was just great. You know, it's not often you do, you know, one scene in a movie, and you, your scene makes the trailer, you know. Hmm. There, there's that luck again, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, there you right go. Luck. 
Yeah, I'm um, starting to realize I'm luckier than I maybe give myself credit for, you know? Hmm. I, I mean, I just really, I didn't know what to expect from it. Uh, even from watching the trailer, I, I thought it was going to be more comedic, but I just found myself like so connected to different aspects of it. Uh, with my parents, um, which both my parents now have passed away as well. Mm. Um, but my dad passed away first, much like in the story. And, you know, that tension with me and my mom, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, I, it just, I could relate so much to a, a lot of it. And um, how do you, like, the part, I guess, that struck me was, you know, leaving your home where where right. they built the life, you know, do you think about that ever? Yes. Um, I think that is the the hardest thing for, for people when they get older because, you know, we all get attached to our comforts and our and our things. And, uh, I mean, that I hope, like I think like most old people hope that they'll never have to leave their home, but I hope if it gets to the point where that's the case that I'm lucid enough to understand and or anticipate the moment coming it's i think it's the hardest when you're attached when you're really really attached to something and you lose it i think that's the hardest thing for people to recover from emotionally and i think when you're older it's even that much harder to recover from things because it's all it all comes down to what i've learned about people watching people older like my grandmother lived you know to be pretty old and stuff was that it's all it all comes down to the will to live like what's your what's your will to live and what's your reason to live right you need a purpose right you need a reason to still be kicking you know and so and for a lot of people their home is is that one of the one of their big things it's their nest and so to take that away is a big deal so i get it the um grandson i thought was very interesting character too kind of the balance between you know the the daughter and mother and that kind of logic um yes yes that was able to keep the peace and um, still understand both sides. I thought that he was really interesting. Yeah, he was and, fun. He was he was on the you know he was in that scene as well. So I, I got to spend time with him and he was he was uh, he was he was funny. He was funny. Him and he was joking with Loretta Devine constantly. And uh, she, she, she got a real really kick out of him. Hilarious. So, yeah. But you know what's the most shocking thing was at the end. I didn't know it was based on a true story. Correct. That's what, yeah. As I was say, the writer and producer is based on his his, his you know his his mom, uh, and, and seeing what he, the shocking thing for him was once you know he got her into a home was how much it was like high school, you know how much it was like there was cliques, there was the popular crowd, the not popular crowd, <laughs> and he, he, he sort of blew his mind that it's sort of like they go back to everybody goes back to high school and they're just old. You know, which is just a totally scary feeling because that is the last place I want to go back to high school. <laughs> I couldn't wait to get out of high school, so I, I, uh, I didn't want to go back there. Well, the um, pictures at the end, and I have to say, when the song played at the end, I, I don't even know that group. I don't know. I never heard the song, mm-hmm. um, but when it played, uh, and they were showing the pictures of the real people, you know, mm-hmm. I, I thought self-teary-eyed it was so sappy and i just loved it right um, so you know i i just i really hope people will watch this because i i, I think it'll be so much more than they think it will be it, it was um it was to me and i i just wanted, wanted you to know that i, I really yeah. was touched by it and, well, and yeah, i laughed the, too 
the power of cinema. I love it. That's yeah. why I always, that's like I try to never forget it. The power of cinema. You know, it, it can it can get us in touch with things you know that we may not you know know we even need to get in touch with. You know, the safety of our whether it's the darkness of our own room in our house or it's the darkness of a theater. We, we get to feel things that we may not, you know, be feeling showing out in life. And I think that's what's so powerful. Just like a good song, you know, takes us places that we wouldn't necessarily go on our own. Hmm. So, well, uh, speaking of songs. <laughs> you like that segue? You like that segue? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about what's next for you. Yeah, so on the music stuff, I've always, you know, been doing music on the side it's always been my other thing it's just obviously not as well known but during this this you know covid time i was like i was like this is it i'm gonna put i'm gonna put this acoustic record out so it's called acoustic gains and i got a little home studio together and started tracking songs and we just put out our second single on it called cherished on uh, wednesday and uh, I'm, I'm real happy with the stuff and uh, it's very acoustic driven very mellow um, but I'm getting a really nice response from people, and, uh, and and I couldn't be I couldn't be happier about that. I also have a band as well called Ripple Street, which is a rock band. We've been putting out singles this year too. We just put out our third single. The last one was called Would You, and it's pretty heavy stuff. Uh, I, 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 I safely say it sounds Black Sabbath esque, and I don't think I'm off there. Nice. It's a little dark and a little heavy, and uh, so I also like my acting. You know, a wide range of of expressions musically and you can get this stuff on spotify and itunes and, and amazon and deezer so just look up courtney gaines look up ripple street and you can you can hear what i'm doing on the music side awesome what about on the acting side on the acting side i got a few things coming out i've got a movie called river mm -hmm. uh, that gravitas pictures also picked up um it's an independent film uh that uh shot in North Carolina and it's a it's an indie film only five-hander um and it, it, it has it I, I hesitate to call it a sci-fi movie because it's not like sci-fi like you're in space and there's tons of CGI mm -hmm. but it, ha it has it has it is it has sci-fi implications to it and uh, I play a character named Dr. Michael Glenn it's a nice departure for me I play a very a hippie-esque heartfelt but he's also a psychologist and antique uh, curator in town very small town and the lead girl, she starts having disappearing, like she disappears and doesn't know where she's going, like time lapses. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of her, like her surrogate father anyway, and I started doing therapy sessions with her and figured out like what's going on. And it's not a role anybody's seen me do. I got a nice big COVID beard. It's very cool. <laughs> so that's coming out July 13th. And then I got another movie that I didn't know was coming on Prime Video that came out this week. It's a horror film that I was in called... Uh, uh, with the dawn it's got some cool people in it like uh, vernon wells and and uh d wallace who's the second time i got to work with her and she is just such a such a good actress um uh, so that's that i just found out came out on prime this week nice. and then i have one more horror film the trailer just came out uh, called the bleeding dark um that uh i play the lead in and it's it's i, I consider it a drama for everything I do, and it's heavy. It's about our, my wife gets killed in a robbery, and my son blames me, and so we're very, very depressed and intense in the house. And he starts, she starts appearing to him, uh, he's, you know, and starts uh, telling him to do things that aren't good. And that's where all the kills are, and the kills 
or like classic 80s 80s horror mm. but all my stuff is like this heavy duty drama so I'm, I'm very interested to see how the the film works because most times horror films don't get that deep as far as emotional right. content you know but this one gets very deep it's very you know very traumatized or very traumatized by this event and it you know, influences our behavior greatly Interesting. Um, and it's, like i said there's a trailer out but i don't know when it's going to get released yet so uh just two two more questions for me and they're just general things um so you've worked with a million different people it seems and uh anybody in particular that you're still hoping to work with in the future uh yeah well uh, yes uh, it's me I, I was asked that question recently and the, the person that first pops into my head is uh i would love to work with glenn close yeah, i just nice. think she's I just think she's a beast of an actress, you know, and and I would love to get a chance to just riff with her and see what happens. But I've also heard from people who have worked with her, you know, it's a small small world, as they say, small business, that she's just a very generous and giving actor as well. And I think that that even makes it that much more appealing, hmm. you know. Yeah. And um, so I would, I would, I, that's that's on my, she's on my bucket list. Ah, cool. What about a uh, role that you'd like to play? Um, I think the kind of roles I'm looking for are, uh, I think I'm a, 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 I think I'm very empathetic toward the underdog, you know, the forgotten, the marginalized, the overlooked, right. you know, so I would love to do something where I get to champion somebody or something like that. And uh, a movie I always use as an example is Al Pacino in Justice for All, mm. you know, where he's this court appointed lawyer and he's just got all these people who are just in dire straits that are all wacky in their own way and the court system is wacky and he's trying to, he's trying to help these people but <laughs> yeah. it's going his life's falling apart but but he takes on the establishment uh, i think that that's the kind of that's the kind of dream role i'm looking for awesome that yeah that that would be pretty cool yeah cat what do you got uh yeah my only last question would just be you know for the listeners out there who whether it's in acting or whatever field, you know, what advice have you um, learned from your life that you feel like you could share with them about being successful uh, in, you know, whatever your one your goal is? Yeah, I think commitment is the number one thing. I also taught acting for a number of years and, and beyond the methods we were teaching, we talked a lot about that and about you being, you know, People say they want to do a lot of things. People want to do a lot of things, but are they committed to doing things? The difference between you're committed is you do the actions consistent with getting what you want. You know, and that's what it takes, and especially in a tough business like the film business. So what's it going to, you know, in the film business, what's it going to take? It's going to take learning your craft, being in classes, studying, getting good, so that when you get the opportunity to perform, you know, to audition for something, you go in there and you leave an impression because I always tell people the door opens easy the first time, but it may not open. If you don't leave an impression, it's not going to open so easy the second time. Mm. Um, so I, I believe that I believe, and I believe when you commit to something, when you 100% commit, like I said before, I think that that's when the universe starts to starts to move toward you, starts to alter and bring things your way. You know, and sometimes you have to go right to the brink of where you want to quit. I've noticed in my life when I'm creating something say music or something you know you're creating on your own from you know nothing as it were 
or you're trying to put a theater show up or whatever, and you're struggling, and you get to that point where you want to quit, but you're taking those actions and taking those actions is that's when you get a little divine help. Something comes along and it all shows up in the end and works out. But I find if you know, this is, yeah, also, you know, that's like God, like, you know, the, you know, like uh, religion, but you know, that's saying God helps those who help themselves. I really believe that. I believe that you take action, then the universe in turn takes actions. Mm. Yeah, I'd have to well, agree I, with you there. Really good advice. <clears throat> All right. Yeah. So, uh, let's see. Anything else, Kat? I just want to say how much I've enjoyed having you today, Courtney, on the show because, uh, you know, even though you scare me and children of the core, <laughs> you redeemed yourself in Queen Bees and made um. me laugh. And also cry, uh, you know. All, right, all I need to do is get kicked in the nest to redeem myself. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's nothing. I would have done it years ago. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that is hilarious. <laughs> and we like humor on this podcast. <laughs> good, good. Uh, but it, it's, it really has. It's been wonderful having you and hearing all the backstories and the advice that you have and, you know, just sharing some of your time. We, I so appreciate that. And I know Matt does as well. Very good. Well, thank you, guys. It was fun. And uh, best of luck with your, with your show in the future. Well, thank you. Appreciate you being here and uh, taking the time to, you know, talk to us and uh, give us some info on what you're up to. And uh, we look forward to talking to you in the future. Sounds good. You guys take care. All right, you too. Goodbye, CG. All right, bye, CG. <laughs> As always, if you have any questions, concerns, or comments, you can send those to cat at iwriteplays at outlook.com, or you can write to me at backstorysessions at gmail.com, or matt at level11ventures.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.